0: Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group.
1: Hello, I'm James Scotland, coming to you today, as always, from the Yungaburra language region in Service Paradise, Queensland, and this is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds? You know them. Digitalization to keep up with your peers and your industries. Decarbonization to meet your local requirements and targets by 2050 and in some states 2045. And ongoing disruptions, which come in many shapes, not only pandemics, but also industry disruptions, product disruptions, logistics interruptions and challenges, global inflation, and many more. This fortnight I delve into different sections of the end-to-end supply chain. I chat with fascinating and interesting people, and we try to have some fun along the way. Today, I'm going to talk about an important emerging issue in supply chain management and business sustainability a concept called product stewardship. Obviously, the centerpiece of almost all supply chains is a good product. But what actually constitutes a good product is a complex question. There's lots of aspects to it, several surprising aspects. And, you know, I want to uncover All of them today if we can product stewardship is a management as a business management concept that is not overly well known but needs to be so what is it one one definition says product stewardship provides an opportunity for business to do more strive for more and achieve more with its products and its processes product stewardship aims to drive environmentally beneficial outcomes through good design and clean manufacturing It promotes the use of components and materials that are easier to recover, reuse, and recycle. Essentially, product stewardship is about designing products that benefit the end consumer, your end-to-end supply chain, the environment, and the community. Everyone wins. Simply put, it's a way of creating sustainable and resilient supply chains, simply by designing better products. At least, that's the way that I understand it. That's my interpretation. But let's find out. Let's find out by asking my guest today, who is John Gusakis. John is a respected and trusted industry advisor, consultant, and advocate who is wholeheartedly dedicated to promoting and fostering the principles of good and responsible design. He is the director of the esteemed Australian Product Stewardship Centre of Excellence. He is an adjunct professor with the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology Sydney. And he is the co-founder of the renowned E-Waste Watch Institute. John is also a member of the advisory group on the circular economy for Federal Minister Plyvisek. So all things considered, he is a perfect person to ask about sustainable product design and product stewardship. So let's ask him, hello, John, welcome to the show. It's a real privilege to have you on Supply Circles. Hello, James. It's great to be here, although I do worry that I I think I'm wearing too many hats given your introduction there. Oh, you're just one of those overachievers, uh, Achievers, Where are you coming from? You're, you're in Victoria, I think, Chile, Victoria. I live in northeast Victoria,
0: in the heart of the Victorian Alps, oh. uh, basically at the feet uh, of Mount Hotham and oh. Mount Feathertop. Uh, it's the perfect place if you're a keen backcountry skier, a bushwalker, a, a deer hunter, a fly fisher. Uh, living adjacent to the Victorian Alpine National Park is pretty
1: special, I must say. I have a problem with that area uh, because I can never fully decide whether it's best to be there in summer or winter. Uh, I go there in summer and say, this is the perfect time to be here. And then I go back in winter and say, oh, no, this is the perfect time to be yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long have you been there? I uh, have been, uh, built, uh, built a house uh, about
0: six years ago, but have been visiting for the last 30 years. I'm a keen cross-country skier and bushwalker and motorbike rider. So for me, it's been a really, uh, really lovely destination over a long time. I think it began with my uh, year eleven geography camp at Mount Hotham and uh, have always uh, been a fan of Northeast Victoria. It's a great region.
1: There's a bit of bear grills in
0: there. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, James. I wouldn't <laughs> go that far. Uh, although our region does have plenty of uh, uh, such characters, but uh, no, I uh, I still love the city. So it's a nice mix between my professional work in 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 uh, Melbourne and Sydney and Canberra, etc., as well as then uh, having having North East. North East
1: yeah, Victoria is my base. It sounds like a great setup. You're the guy that hangs with Bear grills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, John, I, I gave my stumbling view of product stewardship. It's not really a term that you hear all that often. Can you frame it in a way that makes sense for our business Sure. Look, and and, your definitions can vary.
0: The reality, James, is that product stewardship um, is not a new term in some industries. It's been around for 20, 30, 40 years uh, in the chemicals industry, uh, those producing herbicides, insecticides, uh, chemicals, et cetera. So a long history then. It's migrated over the years into other industries, electronics, carpet, vehicles, batteries, clothing, et cetera. But in simple terms... Yeah, you know, the definition you gave earlier is accurate, but in really simple terms, it's about brands and manufacturers owning the product lifecycle to reduce the environmental and human health impacts of those products. It's about taking responsibility for those products placed on the market across the lifecycle, across the supply chain.
1: With the the argument being that if you take responsibility for the whole lifecycle, it's actually better for your business and better for your brand. Absolutely. Um, it's very much a, a case of going beyond compliance. So
0: addressing those environmental uh, performance issues in a product, but a wonderful opportunity in terms of meeting, growing consumer expectations, differentiating a company, a brand uh, in the marketplace. Uh, so there is, and that's the growing acknowledgement really here is that this is more than compliance. It is about meeting what the market wants and needs in particular product sectors, especially. So it is uh, very
1: much a a sensible and prudent business decision uh, these days, not just compliance. Let's come back to that. You're the Centre Director of the Centre of Excellence for Product Stewardship. Is that your day job? Is that your main job? And, And, you know, what does John do? Uh, it is. It's look. Uh, there are uh, we have five
0: directors at the uh, at the centre, um, and they represent the consortium that we're made up of, and that consortium is uh, UTS Institute for Sustainable Futures AI Group and Densu Creative, which is a global communications and strategy firm. So it uh, it is very much my day job. Sometimes it's my night job, and occasionally it's my weekend job. Given the current demand for product stewardship, James, but we exist. To accelerate the uptake of product stewardship across industry, across different product types, through mentoring, education, applied research, advisory, we also provide direct input and advice, and share our views with uh, the Australian government and the Environment Department on product stewardship priorities, issues, and opportunities. We're basically here to support and enable businesses to be better product
1: stewardship, better product stewards. Um, you, you said. Given the the current demand for product stewardship, does that mean more and more and more and more Australian companies are trying to understand how to build better products? using the broad concept of better. That's a big, that that yeah, that's a big yes, James. Um, the demand
0: for uh, knowing more about product stewardship, uh, trying to understand what it is and really drilling down, what does it mean for a particular business or association or product sector? It can mean different things with different priorities, whether you're working in end of life, passenger vehicles versus clothing, versus sporting footwear, versus plastics used in agriculture. So the demand is high, it's growing. Um, you know, government is investing, has invested uh, in some sectors. Uh, we're seeing uh, more regulatory intervention, which in itself uh, is a uh, stimulates demand for advice and information and guidance. So Australia is really at the front end of a, a sort of watershed around demand for product stewardship and doing it better, and that's that's informed by a range of issues: we have climate change, waste, unsafe
1: chemicals, and growing consumer expectation and demand. So is this being uh, driven by government regulations or is this uh, more by just the marketplace? It's a combination. It's a combination in certain,
0: you know, in certain product areas. Um, it's very much uh, government now looking at regulatory intervention. For example, uh, photovoltaic systems, solar panels. Uh, they've been on the uh, environment minister's list since 2016, with not much action nationally. Uh, so now the uh, the Australian government is moving on a process to look at developing um, regulation in that space, as well as. Uh, small electrical and electronic equipment uh, to go beyond where the current regulated scheme of TVs and computers is to move to smaller products. And a lot of this is really catch up with what's happening, for example, in the EU and other OECD countries. In other areas, there is growing uh, consumer interest demand expectation, whether, and we're seeing a lot of this around packaging and how plastics are used in packaging. We're seeing it in relation to batteries and And uh, the importance of consumers wanting to dispose of their batteries responsibly, given some of the other impacts associated with those in terms of fires in factories, in waste management facilities, in trucks, etc. Clothing is another area where we're seeing uh, growing consumer interest and demand for attention to waste avoidance uh, and uh, making sure that apparel isn't adding to our sort of waste crisis and uh, unnecessary disposal to landfill. So, a mix of, a mix of different uh, drivers and responses, depending on the particular
1: uh, product category. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of pressure from councils, but also from the federal government. So, and then the marketplace is having its uh, strength in, you know, in, in what they want from, from products. Mm-hmm. What has the Centre of Excellence achieved over the last few years? What are you most proud of?
0: Look, the, yeah we've been going now for about two and a half years and yeah we're working across a range of different activities you know our, our our achievements in in some respects you know our success is the success of of industry and business doing more product stewardship so you know you could argue that you know we're bringing product stewardship to key decision makers we're bringing it to the boardroom uh, we're bringing it to you know, country managers and and senior managers as well as all of those that are working day to day on environmental management corporate uh, responsibility, et cetera. So we've been directly involved in advising emerging schemes, uh, covering passenger vehicles, uh, existing schemes related to tyre stewardship, uh, solar panels, clothing with the Australian Fashion Council, uh, sports footwear with the Australian sporting goods association resilient flooring mattresses medical products plastics used in agriculture so we're you know for us in terms of achievement it's our contribution to support mentor guide
1: assist be a sounding board for a range of uh, these industries so just to make it aware that product stewardship is about making better products uh, across the board not not just product itself uh, but the the whole concept of the product is better taking in all factors. I assume that it's part of the ESG question.
0: It is. It, it is in part. Um, it, it is around uh, system-wide thinking. It's. It's really about how you know, looking across the life cycle from design and production through to manufacturing, distribution, logistics, the use phase, the post-consumption, post-use phase. What are the options for for refurbishment, remanufacturing, repair, recycling when it reaches the very end of life? Um, so it is very much a more holistic view rather than where we've been in previous decades of um, you know, uh, environmental management at end of life and uh, really dealing with problems once they've arrived. Uh, Product stewardship and and the role of design in product stewardship is really a much more preventative strategy. How do we get in early? How do we design out waste and pollution? How do we design out unsafe chemicals? How do we design out a whole range of issues that cause
1: environmental problems either for uh, the user or downstream uh, at end of life? Yeah, that seems to I think that nails it for me. That really resonated that this is a preventative strategy. This is saying let's get ahead of our markets and our regulations and, and our business costs and uh, the waste. All of that we can address um, by looking at it proactively. And I think uh, that seems to be what product stewardship fundamentally is this get ahead. It is. It is. And look, there's,
0: you know, our experience tells us, uh, the literature tells us that up to 80% of a product's environmental impact is determined at the design stage. So how obvious is that in terms of where you need to make some different types of decisions uh, when developing a new product, redesigning an existing product, et cetera. But key to product stewardship is accountability and responsibility. So who are those that are playing? And this is many of the AI group members who are doing wonderful work in this space, but it is around starting to allocate responsibility more clearly, more specifically around who has influence to design a better product, manufacture a cleaner product, uh, look at the refurbishment stage, et cetera, use reverse logistics in a smart way. So a great opportunity here for uh, businesses to uh, address those issues as a preventative strategy, because the strategies to date, James, we need to be frank here, the strategies to to date haven't delivered uh, all of the benefits and impact reductions that we need to see, whether you're talking about climate change, waste generation, uh, chemicals, resource depletion, known stocks of uh, copper and other critical minerals. yeah, We really do have to think very differently uh, about products, how we develop them, the ecosystem within which
1: they sit. I was going to ask you this later, but now's a good time considering Mm -hmm. what you just said. One of the challenges for a business is the way that the balance sheet is set up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I come from the old days where you would, uh, you know, buy something, you'd capex it over five to ten years. Uh, By then it's worth nothing on your balance sheet, so eventually you throw it away. Just throw it away. There would be furniture, there would be machines, all sorts of stuff. Just get rid of it. It's not worth anything to us. Uh, Sometimes people say, well, You know, sell it maybe, but just it's not worth anything. Just throw it out. The balance sheet was the problem. Is that Mm. still a problem?
0: Look, I believe in certain uh, product categories, certain industries, it is because what what it requires us to do, uh, if we're taking ESG seriously, if we're taking circular economy seriously, product stewardship seriously, is we need to think about this as a you know, as a cost of doing business, and therefore a different approach to how we account for these things. And it's not always just an environmental thing. This is, you know, you could argue that the tax system doesn't necessarily lend itself sometimes to how to better depreciate products over their life so, and therefore yeah. ma- maximize the benefits of leasing a product rather yeah. than owning a product. Um, so it is about you know, a, diff- a different mindset, James. And, you know, this is now the cost of doing business. And some companies do that exceptionally well, others struggle for a whole lot of reasons. SS SMEs, I have great sympathy for in terms of, you know, they're not global brands able to bring in a you know, head of sustainability and do X, Y, Z. So it, it is a challenge, but it does need this sort of system redesign approach, a new way of thinking. Otherwise, we're just going to be, you know, chasing ambulances with, uh, you know, putting out spot fires in this whole space.
1: Yeah. And, and of course, brings in typical bottom line or, or multiple bottom lines where you see the, the business as a an holistic system rather than just a, a an accounting process how did you end up at the center of excellence now I'm you're an adjunct professor so I I accused you <laughs> accused you of being an academic and you said I'm not an academic but you did spend time in the uni system didn't you I did. Look, it's, you know, being
0: pigeonholed is a bit of a dangerous thing. And I have great respect for my scholarly uh, colleagues and researchers. Yeah, you can knock knock them if you want to. They're not listening. (laughs) Uh, They're they're good folk. Uh, But, you know, I spent 10 years at RMIT uh, at -hmm. a wonderful organisation called the Centre for Design at RMIT in Melbourne. It was headed up by a fellow called Professor Chris Ryan. He identified that design has a key role to play in delivering a sustainable future, no matter what the discipline, architecture, landscape, interior, product, textiles, graphic, digital, et cetera. So um, he was also one of my early lecturers when I was a young bloke before I had all the silver and grey hair that I've got. So I went back to work for him. But a lot of our work there was applied research. So we didn't do any teaching. Uh, We basically worked uh, collaboratively with companies like Cambrook back then, Uh, email appliances, Westinghouse Simpson, uh, who are now part of the whole Electrolux group. Mm. We worked with Chevello Commercial Interiors, Blackmores Mm. on packaging. And a lot of it was about introducing design, lifecycle thinking and product stewardship even back then to these uh, Australian companies and brands. So that was where, you know, that's the genesis, I suppose, of my interest uh, in the importance of design and product stewardship in better managing uh, environmental and human health impacts in products Um, and after I left RMIT, really, since then, I've spent the rest of my days working directly with, with companies, uh, with industry associations, uh, working on stewardship, spent many years as a sustainability advisor to the Consumer Electronic Suppliers Association in the development of the Product Stewardship Act. Um, so a lot of my work straddles, is, is building bridges between policy, practice, operations, uh, but also where there's great research being done and with my university colleagues at UTS on the benefits and effectiveness of... of of product stewardship uh, in Australia, you know, how do we use that knowledge, that data to improve existing schemes, design new schemes. So uh, that's the genesis is my days at RMIT. And uh, really, I haven't veered too much, uh,
1: apart from working for different organisations in that same space. What did you learn? I mean, you mentioned a few things there that you've learned, but what, what did you learn fundamentally that design has been wrong for many years or the concept of design is still right, we just need to expand it? Just uh, talk about your learnings yeah, from the, yeah. your, your research, research. Yeah, look, I, I,
0: look, there are a couple of things. One, that um, this whole idea of, um, you know, the importance and potential potency of good design uh, in solving these problems. The other one is... Potency uh, of whole- good design, I love that. Uh, Yeah, look, it's relevant. If done well, it's absolutely potent. The other part is a very strong life cycle thinking approach. Yeah, we don't, we can't just think of end of life and, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution. Yeah, we've got to think about all of those decisions across the life cycle, across the supply chain. So that whole area of life cycle thinking, which and has sort of articulates into life cycle assessment and making more, you you know, quantitative decisions about impacts and issues and priorities. So that that was uh, also another key learning. The other area for me was really around the role of policy and what I call intelligent or proportionate regulation in helping to stimulate better design, stimulate better environmental outcomes and therefore a lot of work looking at what had been happening in the EU uh, with their various directives and other programs and in the Nordic countries and spent time in the Netherlands and uh, and Germany visiting companies like BMW and Bosch, uh, Philips in Eindhoven to see how those companies were doing it but also to understand the link between how they were responding to government policy and government regulation as a driver, as a catalyst uh, for environmentally improved products, uh, reduced impacts. Sometimes successful, sometimes not. So, there's some of the key learnings from me, you know, uh, from my research days, was the importance of design, preventative strategies, lifecycle thinking, but the use of intelligent regulation. Not using uh, uh, mandatory interventions really nilly but where where there are identified issues and impacts, there an industry isn't responding then government needs to step in and and look at those market failures. So a variety of learnings depending on the product sector too, James.
1: Yeah. I I mean, we we, we saw this, didn't we, with the hole in the uh, ozone layer layer when they said you just need to manufacture out CFCs is that is, it, is that what happened that's, what... that's part of it I think that's an example
0: of where you have a, a global uh, a global treaty a global convention uh, that the other world agrees to and then with those global treaties and conventions if you sign up to them if you help develop them as a jurisdiction as a country as a nation uh, you're obliged to respond with, uh, uh, with local initiatives and solutions and responses be they funding investment uh, local legislation legislation uh, within your
1: country so uh, that is a good example and we're seeing that right now um, james but the, the point was that they were able to do it they're able to figure out how to make a product without the the assumed fundamental that's right and this is where industry rises to the challenge
0: in terms of its own r&d and its innovations <laughs> and finding substitutes uh, in terms of those uh, ozone depleting Substances. So, you know, great work by industry, but this is where uh, there is, you know, there needs to be a selective approach to where government intervenes and where it doesn't. You know, often in some areas, industry led work that is voluntary is the way to go. In other areas where the chain is being dragged, uh, you you look at other options. And sometimes the other options aren't regulation, they might be uh, smarter procurement. How do we use procurement to drive the process that levels the playing field, that mm. lets the dollar talk? <laughs> mm-hmm. So there are a variety of uh, responses here. We don't want to get too simplistic or ideological
1: yeah. about yeah. voluntary versus regulatory because there are other innovations. Yeah, we'll come back to systems thinking before because that you know, later on, that uh, after the break, because that's about this whole idea of think of it as a whole system, not just as Correct. a product. Mm. Let's talk about that after the break. Um, we've discussed on this, this uh, program before the concept of Inbuilt obsolescence, uh, Mm. which back in my day was, you know, you'd you'd build the thing to break down so that you have to buy a new one Mm. uh, and you know throw it away. But these days it's not so much uh, breakdown. I've got a a iPhone 14 Pro, uh, which of course is I had to buy. Of course, is much better than the 12, which is better than the 10, Mm. which is better than the Mm. 8, which is, Mm. and so I keep upgrading because um, you know it's better. So we've got this sort of marketing approach of new is better, just keep changing all the time, keep consuming. Is that the enemy of products, stewardship? It's not inherently the enemy of it. Uh, it,
0: it really is an issue, though, that is, that's significant in terms of un- you know, not prolonging the life of products, uh, not looking at how we can keep products longer. And this is where you know, I don't like to generalise, but you know, there is some value here in, in thinking about how, what do we need to do to keep products going longer, especially given that uh, you know, uh, unnecessary generation of waste, single-use products, electronics that have consumables, um, you know, these are all contributing to the waste challenge. So how do we design products so that they – uh, can we we can extend their product life, we make sure that software doesn't bloat them and render them useless, uh, that they can be repaired in a safe and affordable way, etc. But obsolescence is, is uh, uh, an important area that needs to be addressed, you know, in terms of how it contributes to overproduction and overconsumption. Um, and so it is an area where uh, we need to do more. And we're seeing this now with various uh, uh, activities and programs in the EU with their sustainable design rules that are being proposed. We're seeing the French government and now uh, the rest of the EU likely to follow around uh, durability ratings and repairability ratings. uh, The Productivity Commission here in Australia... Um, recommended that a consumer labelling program be set up to look at uh, repairability and inform consumers more. So these are these are areas that are both an opportunity, but sometimes, understandably, uh, for some brands and producers, seen as a threat. Uh, the French index on repairability; uh, several manufacturers have risen to the challenge and really gone for it in terms of trying to get the best rating by redesigning their products. But we've really, we've got to look more closely at uh, avoiding the design and production of short life products, uh, products where batteries are embedded and cause all sorts of other problems. But part of it is the market is saying, yeah, we still want reliable, uh, affordable products, uh, but we want products that last longer, can be refurbished or repaired or upgraded. So I think there are opportunities here. I think it requires a particular mindset um, from key players uh, in terms of is this a threat or is this an opportunity? Uh, and we're seeing again some of the big brands out of the uh, out of Europe uh, looking at these questions of durability, repairability, obsolescence, being able to upgrade. Don't buy a product, lease it. You can now buy, you know, lease and. Uh, Headphones in the Netherlands, uh, you have them for life. They repair them for life. They replace parts. You can self repair, etc. So yeah, you know, but it needs to be approached product class by product class. You've got to be careful about generalising about you know the right to repair being uh, you know how it's applied across different areas. It's different for toasters as it would be for furniture, as it would be for IT versus
1: smartphones, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean you see people. <laughs> I don't understand this. But you see people lining up outside the, the Apple store waiting for the latest Apple phone, or outside the Samsung <laughs> store, or, or whatever to get mm. the very latest. But I don't. I don't get there. I'm, I'm second mm. into the future, not first. Uh, but it does indicate that there is a market for. I, I need new and better and and sparkly and nice and whatever. Uh, and marketers will respond to that. No, I'm a marketer. Uh, that's what you respond to that that, that psych- the psychology of purchase. Will we see a change at the time?
0: Yes yes, and no, James. Markets don't just emerge in isolation. You know, marketing can be a very aggressive sales approach in sure, terms of the sure. comms process and generating that desire. So desire doesn't happen on its own. Desire happens by very uh-huh. expensive uh-huh. television and cinema ads and billboards and pl- product ambassadors. So I think we have to be very honest here about, your know, your chicken and egg and what influences what in this yeah, space. Yeah. But, you know, that whole, you know, Uh, your sales and marketing approach does create this need. You look at your companies and uh, pushing the need to upgrade and sometimes an upgrade can be really useful. You know, uh, let's be honest here. If we look at all of the things that a smartphone does for us, and how reliable they are, um, and how many hours of the day many of us use them, and what they do for us, and how 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 faulty or not they are, you know, generally they're an amazing device uh, in terms of reliability and all of the functions and convenience that they bring. And yes, there's a downside, and we have to look at those. And this is where product stewardship plays a role. But I believe that uh, we do need to sort of redefine how we approach the production and consumption of products. Otherwise, we're not going to deal with a range of these issues, whether it's climate change uh, or or critical minerals uh, that are needed to be processed to go into new electronics and the electrification process, et cetera. We just can't keep going the way we've been going if we want to address those problems and uh, really uh, uh, deliver a sustainable future and increasingly uh, a
1: circular economy over time. If I'd done my research properly, I'd have these figures to hand, but I don't, John. But there's something like, just making up numbers, there's something like 23 grams of critical minerals in the three or four kilo phone that you have, whatever it is, probably two kilo mm-hmm. phone. There's only mm-hmm. 23 grams, but we've produced something like six billion phones. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we've used a lot of critical minerals, and we've got to start looking at that's just not, just stop digging it, basically. Yeah. And, and this is where some you know, really interesting stats exist
0: around um, it's much more cost effective to recover those uh, precious metals and other materials out of out of all electronics and in particular smartphones, but all electronics, because it's cheaper to do that than 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 really mine the various ores in order to extract and process and get those. So, the whole area of uh, you know above ground mining and recovery of these products at end of life to make sure that we don't lose them to landfill, we don't lose them to dumping, etc. Uh, that we can reuse them in the production, the manufacture of of new products. And, and you know, this is this is something that's been acknowledged for a long time at a number of levels. You, you know, the EU has had the what they call the waste electrical and electronics uh, directive and the restriction of hazardous substance directive for, you know, 20 plus years. Uh, so, it's you know, there's an acknowledgement that we've got to recover these products uh, and, and get these materials back and use them in, in manufacturing for new products. But the other really uh, jolting stat is that e-waste uh, out of any, you know, an e-waste is basically anything with a plug or a battery, is the fastest growing waste stream in the world. Uh, so we've mm-hmm. and given our appetite for and hunger of smart home devices, smartphones, laptops, tablets, power tools, cameras, you name it, you know, hobby equipment, whatever, solar panels, inverters, storage, etc. cetera, you know, we've really got to get very smart about both product life extension, uh, refurbishment, remanufacturing, and then recovering those materials at end of life, and, and there are some great examples in Australia uh, and overseas. We just uh, we need to sort of mainstream it, apply it horizontally, and and really deliver some measurable
1: benefit at scale. Let's take a break. Uh, This is a good chat. This is fascinating. When we come back, we'll talk about the the systems thinking and also how those very smart companies do those things. Um, Back in a moment, let's hear an ad from AI Group.
0: If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at AIgroup.com.au. That's B-I-G at AIgroup.com.au.
1: John, before the break, you're talking about some, some really good companies that have been smart about the design and been able to address some of these uh, whole-of-system type challenges for their products. Can you Can you give me some examples of of what's, a, what's success? It, uh, you know, there's some,
0: there are some really good examples. Uh, and again, it depends on the product categories you look at. But if you look at floor covering and carpet, modular carpet tiles, you, know, you look at what interface has been doing uh, in Australia and globally and shore contract carpets, these sorts of yeah. uh, okay. you know, uh, manufacturers of products. If you look at the ICT space and IT, um, you look at companies like Hewlett Packard, what they've been doing over many years across their supply chain, uh, you know, with uh, information for consumers, with recycled content in their laptop housings and design for repairability. Um, you look at uh, companies like uh, Fairphone in the Netherlands and uh, how they're designing smartphones to deal with conflict minerals, but also uh, product life extension, durability, self repair, these sorts of things. And clearly, companies like what, what are they doing? I mean, what's, a, what's what does good look like? Good for them is very much, and the, and the market has spoken in the Netherlands and now they're selling it into the US, but uh, products that last longer, products that you don't have to buy that you can either, you know, you can lease their smartphone or uh, or purchase it. Uh, you can buy self-repair kits. You need to replace the camera. They give you the guidance on how to replace the camera or any other component in the phone. Uh, conflict materials are not uh, in the phone at all in terms of how they source the uh, the materials and minerals that go into that product. So these are, um, you know, recycled contracts is part of the, uh, the list of features too. So there's a, uh, there's a variety of different features depending on the product. Commercial furniture is another area, James, and you've got companies here in Australia like Chavello Commercial Interiors that, you know, most of us have sat at a workstation or a task chair or a, uh, in front of a petition that's made by commercial, uh, by Chavello that, uh, has attention to, uh, again, design for recycling, uh, using low VOC materials in the substrate, in the petitions, um, companies like Woven Image in New South Wales making uh, again acoustic panels uh, with recycled PET um, and, and you've got other companies at, at everyday level Rip Curl doing interesting things with take back uh, of, of wetsuits. Uh, you've got apparel yeah. and clothing companies like Patagonia uh, and North Face and I don't want to put these up, all of them as absolutely perfect but they are good examples of where companies are applying a strong um, you know design, sustainable design process, a product stewardship process, thinking about extended producer responsibility, uh, looking at independent certification of their claims to avoid the whole greenwashing uh, debate and make sure that whatever claims they're making about their products are independently assessed and certified and labelled as such. Um, So a variety uh, of activities here from different companies, and and I'm sure there are many more there that one one could mention, but uh, we need more of it. It needs to
1: become mainstream as opposed to holding up. A handful of exemplars yes yeah, so, so you're saying a longer product life in itself in in its use life uh, try and aim for a longer product life in this use life and then also make sure that once this use is finished that there is established and sensible recycling is that sort of roughly what you're talking about? Uh, and the product design itself is designed using products that are uh, also sensible it is. It is. And look, this is where uh, if you look at the principles of um,
0: circularity, you know, what what is a circular economy? Uh, let's look at it that way. Uh, you know, the key principle is designing out waste and pollution from the outset. That can be applied to any product. Uh, the, the second principle is prolonging the life of products, their components and the materials, keeping them circulating in the economy, whether it's through reuse, repair, durability or recycling at end of life. And then the third principle is around how do you deliver a restorative or regenerative approach to that product or the product system? And that's that's really around how do you develop something in manufacturing that's environmentally positive? Uh, that uses renewable materials, that doesn't contain unsafe chemicals. And that's very relevant in, say, agriculture and horticulture and what what can happen there. Because what we have to do here, and this is a difference between the circular economy and and where we've been the last few decades, is we need to go beyond just less bad. And I think that's what's characterised a lot of product Uh, development, a lot of product uh, stewardship, and a lot of environmental management is less harm and less bad is okay. Well, again, the evidence is telling us that that's been inadequate. Not that it's not worth anything, but we've just got to go beyond the constant sort of minor incremental improvements of efficiency that we have to be environmentally positive and therefore restorative and regenerative. And along the way,
1: underlining all of that is the need to decarbonize. Yeah, it's like saying you're 300% overweight and so I've given up cheese. And you say, well, that's good, <laughs> but that's not what's going to save you. you know, That's a very some-
0: good analogy, James. That's a very good analogy. You know? But it is we have to move into a, into a mode of producing and consuming that builds capital not just these little less harm, less bad sort of things. Yeah, but, and that's yeah. not easy. Don't get me wrong. That is not easy, and it is a challenge. But this is where the right policy settings, government investment, smart
1: companies, good innovation, potent design can start to collectively make a difference. There is a, where are we up to with circular economy? Because it, it comes and goes as a, as a terminology, you know, in the ziggas. In the, it's sort of there, and then it's not. That, what's going on? circular economy is not new really
0: uh, let's let's you know in my view it's not new the principles have existed for a long time those principles I mentioned earlier are, are not new uh, what's new is the new label and if that new label and the corporatization of that label helps bring around positive change that's okay uh-huh. um, but circularity in isolation of who's responsible who's accountable how is it measured what are the what are the impacts and the benefits um, is is another term it's an important term because it flags um, Um, where we need to be in terms of addressing some of these issues. And there is, uh, uh, you know, the idea of designing out waste from the outset and, and again, prolonging the life of materials, keeping them circulating in the economy is really important. Um, But it is, you know, I've heard some entertaining descriptions of, you know, circular economy, uh, and I tend to agree with it, suffers from a lot of cheerleaders and not enough athletes.
1: James, Uh, so, you know, if if we have... I don't know if it's well understood, really, like the fundamentals aren't really well understood. No, and look, it's a matter of who needs to understand
0: them. Uh, It's just like you know, uh, does does your everyday consumer need to know what product stewardship is? No, what they need to know is you know the features of a product, how durable it is, uh, whether it has any recycled content, that it doesn't contain, and then they need to know where can they take it to be recycled or repaired or or whatever. They don't need to understand all the uh, the jargon associated with it. But circular economy is a very important mindset. Um, and it's something that we need to pursue with vigour, but we need to get very practical about it and we need to do it rather than talk about it as much. Uh, and uh, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of loose talk when it comes to circular economy. What we need to see is measurable impact, uh, action, uh, and uh, that's what's really important. And you know, I believe that's where we're heading is an acknowledgement that you know, it's got to be
1: about impact, not just uh, chitty chats about the next workshop on circularity. If you look at companies like Patagonia and uh, Ribcull, too close to my heart outside of work, they have a, a corporate philosophy that says we're going to be good for the world, and then they build products. I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, but they, they build products that are circular, that are, right from the design you know, to the, the you know the, the end life of the of the wetsuit is all based around this whole idea of product stewardship. If I understand what you're saying, this is what we need from every company. We need a company to start saying, we are going to build our business around sustainability.
0: Exactly that, James. It is about making these sorts of uh, principles and strategies mainstream and making them universal. Um, so we don't just uh, hold up Patagonia in outdoor technical outdoor wear and surfwear. <laughs> Every outdoor apparel company in that space. I'm going for a sponsorship, is what you, John. They, <laughs> that's what they're doing. You know, with electronics, we don't just hold up, uh, you know, uh, HP or uh, or Apple or. Or Dell uh, or Fuji Xerox, yeah you know, that they are all doing this. and and in some sectors they're more advanced in making it a universal approach. I'd say that in in some parts that there is a more universal approach. But what you've described is absolutely essential. It's not about just the exemplars. Uh, it's got to be at ha- how these uh, how these circular economy principles of product stewardship, etc., is applied universally. Uh, across the board in an industry in a sector, whether it's domestic furniture, clothing, outdoor
1: gear, end of life yeah vehicles, so on and so forth. We had uh, I had on, as a guest on this uh, program a, a few episodes ago, our mutual friend Rachel Wilkinson, ah, who yes. uh, who good well as she does that uh, recycling is not just recycling that the I and I can't remember it exactly, but you do know, if you recycle it from a product a and it becomes still product A, but in a, a second use, that's good. but you really want to have a bit smarter about uh, you know plastic becoming plastic or plastic becoming some other product. Hmm. Can you explain that a bit more? Do you, do you understand this concept of using recycling you know in a multifaceted thought process? Part of it comes back to the waste management hierarchy, James,
0: and in terms of where the greatest benefit is, it's through waste avoidance. Is there one, then, There's a waste management hierarchy? There is, there is, there is, and people working in this field will know it backwards, <laughs> should know it backwards. You know, avoidance and prevention right from the outset, then moving down through to reduce, reuse, um, you know, repair, you know, and then you get to recycling. Recycling is down in the bottom half the last of, the, of the waste. Right, well, it's yeah. not the last thing because oh. you have safe, safe treatment and processing, right, and then okay. you'll have disposal and landfilling, etc. But it is in the bottom half of the the, the waste hierarchy, okay. and and but we still need to do it because again, you need all of these different options, you know, solutions to address. The issues of using our materials more sustainably, recovering them, reusing them, etc. So, what Rachel was saying, if you know, given your description, is valid. That we we've got to make sure that we uh, what we are recovering is, is goes into uh, upcycled products. That we're not recovering plastics and uh, and uh, putting them into you know, downcycling them. You know, there's a limit to how much garden edging. The world needs yeah, made yeah, from yeah. downcycled plastic. So, yeah. you know, So we've got to think very carefully about how we make good use of this material, which in many applications has has wonderful benefits. Um, but what Rachel is saying, if I understand that correctly, is right. We have to think carefully about making sure we keep adding value, that we prolong the life of those materials, that we upcycle them, um, and that we don't put them into products that in that second life that we lose them forever. You know, I, I do worry about how some materials... I, I think that was her point, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, I do worry about some materials being um, claimed as some major environmental innovation only to be locked in concrete or some other material that may cause some other problem downstream, um, and we can't recover that material, Um, and and it may over time lead to uh, microplastics entering uh, waterways and marine environments. So we do have to think, uh, again, this comes back to a life cycle approach. If we're recycling plastics or any other material into the next product, what are the, what are the life cycle uh, benefits of that or the impacts of that? So we have to get very serious here and rigorous about uh, what, the, uh, what the impacts and benefits, the pros and cons are of whether we, we have a durable product, whether we have a repairable product, a recyclable product. You know, what really is the benefit? Because at the end of the day, a lot of these strategies are about protecting the environment. Uh, that's what. That's why they're being done, and uh, making them uh, commercially responsible and beneficial um, is a wonderful thing. But it's
1: uh, it is very much about environmental protection, environmental quality, and a sustainable future. What about if I buy my uh, buy some of my material to make my finished product? I buy that from a third world country or uh, uh, another country. Um, how do I do I try and design that out or? or do I try and fix it from the third world country or just accept it as – how you know, much about that?
0: I don't think it's, uh, it's a matter of accepting it uh, uh, and not doing anything. I think this is where many companies have pretty sophisticated sort of supply chain evaluation methods and checklists – uh, to verify, to audit, to ensure that uh, modern slavery is being uh, addressed, uh, etc., uh, conflict minerals are being addressed. So this is, you know, this is probably starts to head in the direction of you know, some supply chain management experts answering your question in more detail. But there are processes and methods there, and many, many Australian companies and brands uh, have those uh, have those methods. They have ethical sourcing. Managers and professionals and teams that look at all of those issues to uh, make sure that they're not bringing products or materials or to help ensure that they're not bringing products into the country that are causing environmental or social problems elsewhere around
1: the globe. Yeah, I've asked this question many times in this uh, podcast. So I'm just putting you under the pump like everyone else gets put under the pump. It's <laughs> a
0: really important question. It's a really important question. Yeah, you know, we really do have to look at, Yeah, you know, we global might think we have a, a green a green product here, but what is the, the global supply chain that, that that's at play here uh, and making sure that we address that? And that's what I'm, I suppose I'm saying. We need to get rigorous. We don't want just simplistic claims that product X has some recycled content. We all pack up and go home. We do need to understand the, the origin of materials, where they're made, how they're made, the environmental impacts associated with those. And, and again, I think this is where certain industries and in the IT sector, consumer electronics in, in many cases, has, has developed some, some very, very you know, refined processes to uh, check uh, assess, evaluate, audit, uh, because they are sourcing materials from multiple jurisdictions, multiple mm-hmm. countries. They are manufacturing in certain locations. so And that's why we have these global treaties in part on some issues, whether it's the Basel Convention for the Transboundary Movement of hazardous Waste, whether it's the Montreal Protocol, and now we're heading towards one on, on plastics pollution. Um, you know, that starts to really touch on uh, supply chains and how we can uh, manage them more tightly and in an environmentally beneficial way.
1: You've explained product stewardship in a very non-academic way, you know, in a very practical business way. Thank you, John. If uh, I'm sure there's people listening to uh, this, this episode and running businesses and thinking, well, I need to find out about waste hierarchy. I need to find out about recycling. I need to find out about product stewardship better design. What's, what do they do when they stop listening to this podcast? They can visit our website,
0: so, uh, au. They can have a look at the resources that are there and they can give us a ring. They can send us an email uh, and they can make contact and we're more than happy and interested to have a conversation with them and, and help guide them. If we can help them, we will. If we can't, we'll identify other sources and uh, organisations that can. But we're very interested in particular in talking to, uh, to companies, to manufacturers here in Australia, the suppliers uh, that are interested in product stewardship and, and never to fear whether they're doing it well or not or they understand it or not. Part of our role here is to educate, to inform, to listen to what their challenges are. Rather than simply impose what we think is is necessary without really understanding what they need, so our website and direct contact, um, and and we do this day in day out with various companies uh, around the country. So uh, more than
1: happy to to chat to listeners. We'll put that website in the um, in, in the show notes, and your link page, That'd be great, Um, yes. And of course, I encourage people to take the next steps. Just to finish up, here's a funny story. The other day I uh, I live on the beach. Uh, The other day I went down the beach to the local surf club, grabbed a coffee and Mm -hmm. was sitting on the beach drinking coffee as the sun came up and so it was so beautiful. I took a photo and put it on my socials and my niece, who is a lawyer and mother of of two, uh, put a message on my photo saying, why are you using a recycle cup? Uh, of, and it's uh, I, I saw straight away that I'm sitting somewhere absolutely gloriously natural and beauty uh, and I'm destroying it. <laughs> we, saw, we all need to start thinking, don't we?
0: We do. We do. We can, uh, you know, as the saying goes, we can act locally uh, in a very effective way and we can make all sorts of decisions. You may make a whole lot of other decisions, James, that are environmentally very positive uh, that eclipse uh, that one disposable coffee cup. But, yeah, get yourself a good uh, reusable coffee cup that yep. doesn't look like a super
1: cup. And remember to take it with you, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, sorry, sorry, Deb, I'm, I've fixed it. I have fixed it, I promise. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, John. Thanks for, for sharing with us. Uh, it's been a, it's a wonderful chat. Are you going – we're recording this on a Friday. Uh, are you going up into the high country and going to go hiking or skiing this weekend? I'm returning to the uh, to regional Victoria tomorrow morning, uh, and looking forward to that. I had a
0: great time in Melbourne, lots of meetings with uh, various companies and, and stakeholders. But yeah, back to uh, back to the Alps tomorrow, and hopefully uh, getting a chance to plan some ski tours uh,
1: up onto the big tops around Mount Hotham. Yeah, get offline and uh, and enjoy. This Absolutely. wonderful country we live in. Thank you so much. For Absolutely. Thanks, James. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for an, another episode of Supply Circles. Uh, we really did talk about sustainability today. And I, I love the conversation. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and thanks for your feedback, which comes in all the time. If you have any uh, feedback on today's interview with John or ideas for the show or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at james.scotland. That's one T, james.scotland at aigrip.com.au, or go head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thanks for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now.